I'm part of the fellowship. The fellowship. The fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or popularity. I don't have to be right, recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of the enemy. Pander at the pool of popularity. Or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must keep going until he comes. Give until I drop. Preach until all know. And work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Wow, what a statement, huh? Great reminder of the fact that the GPS of our culture is pointed to a place that we're not headed. You know, it is just sending us messages about a place to go that we aren't headed. And that statement from this uh, pastor who ends up martyred for his faith is perhaps one of the best reminders you could ever have of what does it really mean to choose to follow Christ. And it means to walk a different path in a different way to a different place. Uh, Probably no better book in the Bible to think about that than to think about that through the book of Daniel, right? I mean, Daniel is the guy who ends up in the culture that is exactly headed in the wrong direction. So we're going to take a look at Daniel today, uh, Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there with me. It's really fun to be back. Thank you guys for welcoming me back. It's great to to be here again. Um, This was my home for... 33 years or some huge long time like that. So it always feels a little bit like I'm, I'm uh, coming back home. And uh, thanks for that, for that welcome for me. Um, as I mentioned, the book of Daniel really is about this sort of countercultural um, context where Daniel's living. And then how do you live successfully in it? And of course, Daniel faces various challenges as he goes through. One of the challenges he faces and faces in this chapter is the challenge of how do I speak words of truth to people who don't believe that these things are true? How do I speak truth to power, particularly secular power, that is convinced of its own might and has every disregard for my own beliefs? Sound familiar? I mean, it's kind of funny. The book of Daniel reads a little bit like this ancient Near East document and a little bit like the LA Times, right? You, you see the sort of tensions and kind of the harsh rejection, people in power practicing sort of arrogant expressions of might. Uh, in, I mean, I mean this very broadly in terms of our life and culture today. So this is the context that we live in, and it sounds amazingly like Daniel. And the idea that we should be speaking truth to those in power that they might repent um, sounds exactly like the mission that was given to Daniel. Indeed, perhaps the only difference between us and Daniel is that he did the mission well and we've kind of been doing it poorly. So it's probably worthwhile to take a minute and stop and pay attention to what Daniel did and how he did it in the hopes that we might be able to fulfill what I think we have as a very similar mission but do it just a little bit better than we've been doing it. So that's what I would like to do with the time that we have. So in Daniel chapter 4, you get this remarkable story about Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire, and Daniel. Let me just give a little bit of the back history. Some of this you may have already heard in in previous messages. I'm not sure. But let me just take a couple minutes to highlight a few things because they're relevant for how the passage unpacks. Number one, Babylon was a great military might. So 
the beginning of the Babylonian Empire is usually marked by the, the uh, victory that Nebuchadnezzar won before he was even king. He was sort of crown prince at this point in the Battle of Carchemish, which is up north of modern, uh, what we would think of as Israel or Palestine, uh, drifting up into Syria and towards even southern Turkey. So when he won that, he, he uh, beat the Assyrians and, and in fact took over their empire. Before he was done, he also went all the way down through Palestine out the other side and conquered Egyptian pharaohs a couple times. As he was running back and forth, of course, he felt the need to conquer Israel. Um, and that happened actually three different times in 605 BC and 597 and 586. Daniel was moved out in the first of those three exiles. So he went out in 605 BC. But by the time he was done, he had conquered probably an area that we would conceive of of almost the entire area that we call the Middle East. So the whole Saudi Arabian Peninsula up into Syria and Turkey down towards Egypt. And it was a massive empire by ancient standards, uh, perhaps even by our own standards. It was an impressive empire. So he's a great military might. The other thing, he was an amazing economic power. Um, and the marker of that, uh, he, he was wealthy, and you can count your money any way you want, but really in the ancient world, one of the key markers and ways you actually showed that you were wealthy was by what you built. So Babylon was built in many ways by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he is actually more famous, there's more inscriptions about what he built than what he conquered. For all the conquering that he did, his building was even more impressive. Uh, you, you find these excavations, the excavations on the ancient uh, tell, the mound where the ancient city of Babylon was, I, I think is over 20,000 acres, the area that's covered by this. Buildings there that were 1,500 feet by 1,200 feet in terms of the outbuildings and the main building combined. So a mammoth project. He was the guy who built two of the ancient uh, seven wonders of the world. That's a fairly good batting average for one like contractor, Okay. Um, one of those being the uh, Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which he just, you know, he found one of his wives a little sad. What's wrong, honey? Well, I come from Persia where there's mountains and flowers and trees, and I live in Babylon that looks like a sandstorm, and I'm feeling lonely and lost and whatever, and says, I'll build you the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So, boom, there it is. Well, a few other things happen, but that's, that's the essence, right? So he's, he is crazy productive in this, built the walls, well, rebuilt, the walls of Babylon, built the famous Ishtar Gate, um, so spectacular that when the, the German uh, archaeologist who did this excavation found this Ishtar Gate, he was like, good grief, it is gorgeous. Still, after being you know, in the sand of Babylon for ever many hundreds or literally thousands of years, disassembled the Ishtar Gate, they sent it off, and you can see the Ishtar Gate reassembled now in Berlin. And if you Google it or look at it, you'll find a spectacular, beautiful gate. It's stunning by our standards, built 2,500 years ago by Nebuchadnezzar. Crazy economic power and crazy builder. Um, at the same time, there was, of course, a bit of a dark side to, the, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So when it comes to religion, uh, it was a place of crazy chaos. I won't bother reading this inscription, but there's this inscription they found in Babylon that lists the temples. It's kind of like a tour guide for the religiously confused in order to help them get more confused. So they have a list of all the different temple options. I counted them up and added them together, 1,380 different temple worship sites in this ancient city of Babylon. It was crazy. And by the way, the way they worshipped was a little bit problematic. We not only had religious chaos, but the way they worshipped was through some of the grossest examples of sexual promiscuity that you could ever imagine. Um, that was fairly common in the ancient Near East. You were worshipping fertility gods. The way you did that was usually by having sex with a temple prostitute. That was relatively normal, which is problematic enough by our standards. Babylon, and this comes from Herodotus, so this isn't... Uh, a Christian critique of the Herodotus was a great Greek um, studier, or actually in some ways a father of, of history, and he was recording some of these great wars and has a lot of interesting information about many ancient cultures. But in Babylon in particular, he talked about the levels of sexual corruption, and then he identifies the worst one, which he says it was in effect universal coerced sex trafficking. Here's how it worked. Every woman once in her lifetime had to go to the temple of Aphrodite and sit there until she was taken by a man. 
And for women who were attractive, that often happened pretty quickly. Perhaps they only had to be there for a day or two. For those who were unattractive, sometimes three or four years, they were expected to live in the temple. I didn't want you to have to think about what that would do to a person's psyche. And this was mandatory for the population of Babylon. So that's Babylon the Great that we're looking at here in this story. Um, And part of why I want to point this out is that when you hear about Babylon in Scripture, sometimes you're literally talking about Babylon as in Daniel chapter 4. So they are literally describing the city of Babylon. But the interesting thing is the characteristics that I've just described of Babylon became sort of codified into the word Babylon so that many other places, times, and almost attitudes are described in Scripture by Babylon. (laughs) Um, So you read in the New Testament, it will talk about Babylon pretty like if you read the book of Revelation, it'll have all this Babylon language. It's almost always talking about Rome because in effect, Babylon became a symbol for a city or an empire that had become great but had ceased to be good. And that was characteristic, obviously, of Babylon, but it was also very characteristic of Rome at the time of the New Testament. And it's become sort of a language that Christians have adopted through the last 2,000 years to refer to great cities and empires that have become great or else great in their own mind, but in so doing, they have ceased to be good. And it is interesting to stop and think, if you look around the world today and ask yourself the question, Who's the greatest military might in the world today? Who's the greatest economic might in the world today? What country has fallen into chaotic religious worship and gross sexual immorality? Do any come to mind? Isn't that a little awkward when you realize how much of that just describes where the U.S. is right now as a country? And I, you know, trust me, I didn't get some special vision from God that I'm speaking about, you know, repent, O Babylon, USA, about this. I'm just making the observation that when you read this description, you almost always think of someone else, preferably like Adolf Hitler kind of people who you just know that you're not. But the interesting thing is the qualities and characteristics that mark a Babylon in biblical language are stunningly descriptive of the United States today. And so when we think about slogans and sayings like, make America great again, now I am, obviously that was a slogan that Donald Trump used, please, every American politician (laughs) uses almost that language to describe America. So this is not, this is not my let me dump on Trump moment, I'm just saying no. This is the way we talk about our country, let us reestablish the greatness of of America. And here's my one little thought. I'm a little worried that we should be more concerned about making America good again than making America great again. I think our greatness is far less threatened at the moment than our goodness is. And I think for us as Christians, we are the ones who may need to raise our voice and look our country in the face and say, yes, but. It's great to be great, but we still need to be good. So this is an interesting message and context for us to think that I'd love to bring to the passage where it feels a little bit closer to who we are and where we live and a little bit more distant from just some ancient place with crazy people doing lots of bad things. So with that in the background, let me talk a little bit about the story of Daniel 4 itself. Um, It begins with this declaration from, uh, I guess I'd do better if I actually looked in the book of Daniel. Yeah, okay, got that problem solved now. Um, So Nebuchadnezzar begins with kind of a decree about the Most High God and what he's done for him. Let me tell you about his, you know, glorious deeds, his his signs and wonders. So what does he do? Well, as we read through the story, we discover first in the, the beginning of the passage, Nebuchadnezzar is thoroughly enjoying being the king of the great city of Babylon, but he goes to bed one night Um, And he has this vision, and he finds the vision rather disturbing, Uh, probably for good reason. He sees this image of this tree that grows up, and its top reaches all the way to the heavens, and the birds of the field and the beasts. I get this wrong every time. Anyhow, some birds and beasts show up. Who's in the field and who's in the sky? I keep getting confused. But anyhow, they all show up. They live under the tree. They find abundance of fruit. It's this wonderful place. Everything's fantastic. And then this watcher shows up. 
Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Whoa. So Nebuchadnezzar's a little queasy about this. And what happens? Well, then all the beasts of the field flee, of course. The birds have to go somewhere else. And then this stump, they bind with iron bands, kind of a symbol of slavery. Uh, And this is a story that happens, and he wants the interpretation. Um, It is interesting, by the way, I'll just mention this at at this point. You know, if you read through the story, it's talking about the tree, so the pronouns are all it. Then in verse 16, uh, verse 15, you have this interesting change. Let the stump of its roots in the earth and band with iron among thinner grass. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast. Let his mind be changed from a man's. You know what happens halfway through the vision? It explicitly goes from referring to a tree to referring to a man. So let me just point out, in this story, this isn't one of these stories about, ooh, Daniel's so wise. He can discern these visions that no one else could. I mean, I'm looking at this vision. I'm thinking, I'm pretty good with this one, Daniel. You can sit down. I got it covered. Um, because, well, because it's hardly even needing an interpretation, right? So why are they chasing down Daniel? It's not because all the other wise men are so stupid they can't interpret a dream that came almost pre-interpreted. It's because they're chickens, right? They're like, the punchline here is really bad for the dude who likes to kill people and has the power to do it. I think I'll zip my lip. So this isn't an interpretation problem. This is a courage conviction problem. Daniel is shown to be great here as a person. His qualities come forth, not as a person who has a great mind, but a person who has a great heart. He's willing to speak the truth to power. And that is, of course, what he does in the next um, chapter here. He, he, of course, is concerned about this. Verse 19, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And so Belteshazzar, or, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is looking at him, and he sees that Daniel's all upset, and he says, look, don't worry about it. Just tell me the truth. I just want to know. So Daniel takes a deep breath, and he says, look, would that this fate would come upon your enemies. And all of a sudden, you realize he's going to be very clear about this because this is going to be really bad. He says, I'm going to tell you something that will happen to you that not only you, but I wish would happen to your enemies instead. But here it is. And then he unpacks the vision. And he says, look, you're the tree, dude. You're the one who's grown up to heaven. You're the guy who's so great. Everybody's found shelter under your branches. All the things that you think about Babylon being great are true. It is great. But there's a watcher in heaven, and you have ended up raising up your heart and pride and thinking you've done this all on your own, and you need to repent. And Daniel actually calls him to do exactly that. Um, He confirms this warning. He says, this is the tree, this is who you are. And then he says, um, therefore, O king, verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness in your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. I mean, he just lays it out there. And notice, it isn't mean, it's just clear. And that's a message that comes to Nebuchadnezzar. What does Nebuchadnezzar do with it? (laughs) He ignores it. Next verse. All this happened, it came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, while he's walking his house, during time which he's done nothing. I'm sitting here picturing this whole story. Imagine you get a message like this, like from the IRS coming after you for your money and back taxes. If I'm getting this message, my response is, hey, let me hang out for 12 months and see what happens. I'm like all over, repent, fix it, do whatever. But you know what? Nebuchadnezzar is so proud, he can't imagine this actually happening. And so what do we find? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's all wound up thinking, hey, this is great. He's standing on his rooftop and he says, Is this not the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Wow, we learned a lot from Daniel's message, didn't we? Um, And of course, while those words are still in his mouth, the judgment comes upon him. And he ends up going insane. He travels like a beast in the woods. Notice the place where once the beast got shelter. Now that shelter has become a beast himself. And he's wandering around with the dew on him and all this sort of stuff for seven years until he finally realizes 
that it is indeed, as he says in verse 34, at the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, my reason returned me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him forever. Why? Because his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation. Notice how all the pronouns have changed. From me and my to him and his. And he's gotten the message that God is the one who appoints us. Um, sometimes, and, and so he repents. Now, sometimes when you read these stories, we kind of think, maybe, is this a little overinflated? So just for the sake of perspective on this, I, uh, I mentioned earlier the Ishtar Gate, this wonderful, marvelous gate that Nebuchadnezzar had built. Well, upon that gate, he had an inscription. Let me just read the inscription that Nebuchadnezzar put on the Ishtar Gate. I, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the faithful prince appointed by the will of Marduk, the god, the highest of princely princes, beloved of Nabu, another god, of prudent counsel, who's learned to embrace wisdom, the untiring governor who always takes to heart the care of the cult of uh, two Babylonian gods and is constantly concerned with the well-being of Babylon, the wise, the humble, the king of Babylon. <laughs> And I'm like, wow, Daniel definitely gave the dude the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you read the book, and I'm like, he's looking way better in the Bible than he is on his own inscription in the Ishtar gate. So this guy had a really, really big head problem. Um, And this, of course, makes the story for what Daniel is called to do, which is, in effect, to call Nebuchadnezzar to repent. And as I was thinking about this, and thinking as I mentioned that we have in some sense a similar challenge in the world in which we live today, kind of three questions, three responses came to my mind that I hear people saying when for one reason or another they feel pressed, obligated, or perhaps challenged to speak a challenging word of truth to someone who may be headed in the wrong direction, calling power or some other person simply to repent. How do we respond And the first question I hear people respond to that with is this wonderful phrase, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? Now, the reason people say that, and this is probably the thing I hear most most often with the students I work with at the college level today. That phrase comes off their lips really, really quickly. And let me just explain a couple of reasons why a person might feel that way. Number one is that they're just sick and tired of kind of the animosity argument culture. They've seen people confront someone else by saying things that are mean and offensive and harsh, and the only thing they can picture is someone speaking hard words another person doesn't want to hear, and that person ends up being hurt, and, and they're saying, I don't want any part of this. And the way they say that is by saying, who am I to judge? A second thing that has happened, and again is particularly characteristic, this is of the university, and out of that has spread to broader culture, is as part of what we might broadly call a pervasive social justice sort of orientation that we have today, and I'm certainly not a guy who's opposed to social justice, but as part of that package is a certain feeling about the fact that when people deviate from standards that you may have, it's very important that you accept them because anything other than that will actually lead to people feeling alienated or you're challenging or questioning their identity or their values or their quality or characteristics as a human being. And we surely can't do that. That is, in effect, violating that person's rights or civil rights. And it's interesting on this point, you know, most of us are very familiar with a a slightly different notion that is that in a pluralistic society, we have to give people space to be different than we are. And you might put that under the label of toleration. In other words, you have to be willing to tolerate behaviors that you would never do yourself or perhaps don't even think anybody should do. But in a pluralistic society, we have to tolerate that nonetheless. Now, that's the thing that I'm fairly familiar with growing up with. Um, That's the thing that, that clicks with me. But this has become different now because it isn't a question of what are you willing to tolerate. Toleration is by no means acceptable in this. And in fact, even accepting the behavior isn't good. The behavior needs to be affirmed. The person needs to be validated. So it's important that whatever you do validates whatever choices that other person has made. Unfortunately, even if you find those choices to be wrong, immoral, perhaps even morally reprehensible. 
But the message is that if you were to say that or convey that or think that, you somehow are invalidating this person's identity, denying them the proper space they have to stand in our society. So we need to not simply tolerate or accept them, but actually affirm them. We need to become an affirming place for fill-in-the-blank aspects of of social behavior. Um, So in that context, you're saying, well, who am I to judge? I'm not really allowed to judge. It's wrong to judge another person's behavior. So that's a couple of reasons why people say that. And I get it. I really do. I get it. But it's an interesting phrase when people say, who am I to judge? And part, part of the time when I hear that, I'm like, well, is that a rhetorical question or an argument you're offering me? Because if it's a rhetorical question, I'd kind of like to question it. I mean, who am I to judge? Well, it's possible that you're a well-meaning Christian who has a love for his or her neighbor, has a commitment to speak the truth in love, has a desire to be slow to anger and quick to listen, and is willing to love both friend and enemy around them, but you're also acquainted with God's moral will, and so when you look at certain activities, you feel obliged and compelled to speak to them the truth in love. So who am I to judge? Well, maybe I'm just a faithful Christian. I mean, it's a thought. Work with me here. I mean... And, of course, for some people, well, yeah, faithful Christian, right? Who are you to put your beliefs on somebody else? Well, so they broaden that out a little bit. I, I did my dissertation on abortion many years ago, and in doing that, I read a whole bunch of literature, ethics and legal literature about these kinds of issues, and some of it was from the U.K., and they had this wonderful phrase uh, in, in the U.K. about the man on the omnibus, and that's basically the same as we often talk about the man on the street, But it's language I use a lot in a legal context where they're really just describing the ordinary Joe. And these are the people who serve on a jury, right? And in fact, if you've ever served on a jury, you've probably had the judge explicitly tell you, look, you're not required to have any special knowledge. In fact, if there's any expertise required for the case, we will bring in an expert to explain that issue for you. But the things you have as an ordinary person perfectly well equipped you to discern between what is right and what is wrong, what's happened and what what hasn't happened. And we are actually, when we put a person on the jury, what do you render? A verdict, judgment, right? Who's qualified to be judging? Well, apparently the man on the omnibus. And in fact, I didn't know it, but I'm a man on the omnibus because the Orange County, Santa Ana, Courts just saw fit to send me a jury summons. Why? Because apparently they think I'm fit to render judgment. Who knew? (laughs) So this whole idea that who am I to judge, I'm like, what do you really mean by that? Because apparently the government thinks I'm adequate to judge, and they're not even thinking about this weird Christian stuff I was going off on a minute ago. But for me as a good Christian, I'm thinking, well, gosh, aren't I supposed to be able to discern between good and evil? I mean, in some sense, of course I should be able to judge, right? So there's something weird about that whole line of thought to me. Um, Secondly, and perhaps more the point in this context, when are you really called on to judge? I mean, I just told you the one time is when you're in a jury, but the rest of the time, my sense is when people say, who am I to judge? These are people who are a million miles away from ever even thinking about carrying out judgment. They don't have the office to judge, nor the inclination to judge. Uh, Let me just go back to the story of Daniel. I mean, it's an interesting story. I I wrote down my my short version of it. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar sins. Number two, God sends a vision to Nebuchadnezzar. Number three, Daniel explains that the vision is a warning. Number four, Nebuchadnezzar ignores the warning. And number five, God judges Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's what we just heard. So let me give you the trailer. Daniel warns, God judges. Right? So when we're asking, who am I to judge? I'm like, well, that isn't really the right question here, right? The question is, who am I to warn? Well, now that's an interesting question. Maybe you could ask, who are you not to warn? Right? I mean, the reason we warn someone is because we know something that we think they would want to know before they did the action that they're about to do. 
So the person's backing up and you warn them about the shopping cart behind them. Why? Well, you're going, well, look, the dude's backing up his car. I think he'd like to know there's a shopping cart back there and he's about to hit it. So the qualifications for being a warner are pretty low. I saw the shopping cart. Hey, there you go. Worn away. I mean, it's your great opportunity. So it doesn't really take much to be qualified as a warner, right? And that's exactly what Daniel is called to do here. And it's interesting, as we, as we look at this passage, um, <laughs> we can draw some interesting lessons from Daniel about warning. Number one, the thing I like about his warning it is it's really clear and it's really simple. Nebuchadnezzar's worked up about the vision. What does it mean? He says, yeah, let me help you. You're the man. And this is the judgment you're being warned about. And I encourage you, therefore, to repent. It's really simple. It's really clean. And there's nothing mean about it. It's just clear. So the first thing we learn about Daniel, about being a person who warns, is that he warns clearly. Not meanly, just clearly. The other thing that's interesting is what he warns about. So all kinds of bad stuff is going to happen here. Ooh, there's terrible consequences. And sometimes when we think of warnings, we think about, oh, let's amp up the terrible consequences. This happens a lot. I was just in a meeting where people were talking about the, the purity culture and the way we warn high school and junior high school kids about sexual things, and we like to amp up the consequences. If you do this, here's all the terrible things that will happen to you. STDs, pregnancies, you know, your life is ruined and whatever the package is. But we amp up all the consequences. It isn't really what Daniel does here. He doesn't spend a lot of time. I mean, the consequences all came from Nebuchadnezzar. He already had them, right? What does Daniel warn him about? He doesn't warn him about the consequences. He warns him about the watcher. He warns him about the watcher. Man, I was reading this passage in preparation for, for speaking today, and I, I hit verse 13, and I was like, wow. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay upon my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one. A holy one, Nebuchadnezzar, is watching you. Um, you go on down, verse 17. You know, he talks about the judgments that's coming. He says, this sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that man, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whoever he wills. Daniel doesn't warn him about the consequences, doesn't warn him about all these terrible things. He just warns him that there's a watcher. There's a watcher. A holy one who's watching, that knows and cares about what you're doing. Um, Sherry and I, when we first bought the, the house we spent most of our years at in Redlands, um, it was built in 1950, and it had nothing kind of on the backside, so there was a porch that came straight out of the kitchen. Um, and then they had built later, before we got there, kind of a six or 700-foot addition on the back with a big uh, family room and all of that. If any of you guys have been in our house, you probably had done things in that, that room. But when we first got there, they had left the original wall in. So there's this big wall, and then there's a place where a window would be, but the window's taken out, and you just look right through that window into this big family room, but it's all inside the house. So it looked kind of funky. It was obvious it was an addition, and when we moved in, we thought, yeah, in the course of events, we probably want to get rid of this wall, but for a while we had that wall there and we're looking through the window into the, uh, into the um, family room. So kids at this point are maybe second grade and fifth grade, um, and it's interesting what happens as kids begin to grow up. You know, they're born into civilization. Um, by the time they mature and grow up and marry and have their own children, they re-enter civilization. But in between times, they go through this strange place and this was roughly speaking where my daughter was at this moment, like I say, roughly in fifth grade. My son had gotten home earlier. He was sitting on the couch reading a book. Sharon and I happened to be in the kitchen behind this sort of window, um, and we were looking at Mark, my son, who was like dead ahead of us. Crystal came through the door on the side. Now, because of the window thing, she couldn't really see that mom and dad were in the kitchen watching. <laughs> so she opens the door comes walking in, the couch is right there, Mark's head is right there, and just goes, whack! <laughs> and just keeps walking. 
And Sherry and I, I mean, we're standing by the kitchen sink and we look at each other like, what did we just see? This is unbelievable. And so we, you know, roughly speaking, called Crystal to account, so to speak. But the, the, <laughs> here's an interesting thought. Imagine you were Crystal's friend and you were in the family room at the time. And she walked in through the door and uh, she begins to line up for the magic blow. What do you say to Crystal when you're already in the room and you see mom and dad watching? You warn her, right? Don't do it. Mom and dad are watching. They may not be holy ones, but I bet they can get mean. So this is what I mean about watching. Why do we view warning someone about the watcher to be some sort of unloving activity? For heaven's sakes, if you look and you see a watcher and this person is acting like there is no watcher, love them enough to warn them. Now, people often don't like to hear this. They get a little queasy about a God who watches like that and judges like that. And one of the interesting things in this passage that is you know, kind of hidden in the background of this is how much Daniel is concerned about getting the watcher right. So there's a lot of language at the beginning in the proclamation about who this Most High God is, a lot of language about that at the end about who the Most High God is, and a chunk in the middle about who the Most High God is. He's very concerned about getting the Most High God right. And it's probably worthwhile to point out to people who are concerned about this watcher, says, look, it isn't just a mean guy with a bad attitude waiting to paddle his kids for paddling their siblings. That's not really the story here. Number one, God is the most high God, i.e. the creator God. He made the world moral. So morality has been embedded into the system. It doesn't even require outside intervention to judge immoral activity usually. The world is pretty good at correcting on that count because that's how the world was made. Number two, the assurance that God really does see. Perhaps this is nowhere stated more clearly in Scripture than in Hebrews chapter 4, It says it way better than I, so let me just read it. No creature is hidden from his sight. That's who our watcher is. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There it is. There's a watcher. There's nothing you do. There's nothing you say. The immediately preceding verse talks about him discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It doesn't matter if it's inside. It doesn't matter if the outside. He watches and he knows. Now, if that makes you ready to to curl up and die in your seat, here's the other thing to remember that you also see in act in this passage. Though he watches and he's holy and he's moral and he knows, he also cares. Not just cares enough to pay attention and watch, but rather he cares about you. Here's an easy way to think about it. God cares so much. He loves you so much it kills him. Literally, right? He knew he made moral creatures in a moral unit that would suffer the consequences of immoral behavior. And he loved those creatures so much that he died so they wouldn't have to suffer the penalty of death. That's the watcher. And hopefully that makes people feel just a little bit better about who it is who will be knowing and watching and judging. But the worst thing we could ever do is not tell someone that there's a watcher. And Daniel in this regard is a wonderful model of simply communicating that very clearly and well. Now, another concern I've noticed people, or another thing that comes up is what I call, who are they to sin? So if the, the first people are really reluctant to speak to sin and confront it or to judge it, The other people are the opposite. Who are they to sin? They're offended that people are, these people are mocking God. And of course, we see kind of YouTube examples of this when you see all the clips about Westboro Baptist Church or something like that where they're shouting and then have all these signs about, you know, who God hates and all this other stuff. And, you know, you you look at it and I, I mean, I guess I'm betraying my biases, but at some point I look at it and I'm like, yee. And, And you just wish that people wouldn't talk that way. But they certainly seem to be happy to be offended at these people, you know, who are they to, to sin like this? Another thing I see a lot of in terms of our response that kind of is the, the people who are more eager to call to repentance is a more kind of genial version of that 
that's organized around, you know, protests and boycotts and things like this. We're saying, we're going to stop this behavior. This, this cannot stand. Um, I don't even know what really is going on in the mind of Westboro Baptists because I don't think they're thinking anyone will quit doing the behavior because of their expressions of disgust. So I'm not sure exactly the plan there. With the boycott, protests, and things like that, I know the plan is to make that behavior out of bounds, to make it stop. Um, so that's the thing that we can certainly do. Um, another thing that I've um, seen people doing is basically having kind of the rising anger quotient at the behavior. This is who are they to sin kind of thing, where they look at this behavior and they get more and more upset about it. And then the things they communicate have a way of conveying anger that perhaps makes them feel better, but I can't imagine it actually changing the attitudes of the people that they're angry at. Let me give you an example. Now, this is not one that I dug up from some guy on the Internet with bad attitudes and too much time to blog. It isn't some guy who's caged up in his mom's bedroom or basement or whatever. This is a guy who's a New Testament professor, actually a very thoughtful guy. I've used some of his stuff in a variety of different contexts. But in response to the Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage, here's what he writes. Five lawless judges, all four Democrat-appointed judges, Obama's Sotomayor and uh, Kagan, Clinton's Ginsburg and, and Breyer, one traitor appointed by Reagan, Kennedy, defeated four constitution-abiding judges, four of the five Republican-appointed judges, Bush Jr.'s Roberts and Alito, Bush Sr.'s Thomas, and Reagan's Scalia, to foist gay marriage on all 50 states. Five unelected lawyers have acted as legislators and imposed their arbitrary and extreme left-wing ideology on all the American people, culminating to judicial tyranny over the past two years that has preempted the democratic process. Okay, then. Um, And, you know, there's an awful lot of things that he says in there that I might very well agree with, but I hear the rhetoric And it's kind of like your attitude is speaking so loud, I can't hear your words, right? You just have this sense of, oh, this isn't about trying to change me. It's about you getting something off your chest. And here's the trick when you think of calling people to repentance. The goal is actually a change in the person, not just terminate the behavior. The person still has the same attitude. No, repentance is a tricky thing. Because it's really a thing that's all about the person more than behavior. Repentance involves a turning away of one thing and a turning towards another. And a lot of times when I look at our examples of the people who are quick to say, um, you know, who are they to sin? I go, you know what? I think they're a little too worried about the sin and a little too unworried about the people. And I'm worried that that posture will never actually move the needle on a person to repent. And by the way, back to this, let me question all of our wonderful questions. Who might have sinned? Um, Well, that's an interesting thought. Let me help you out with that one. Well, they're sinners, right? (laughs) That's what we think we all are, right? Um, So they're people with disordered desires, with partial knowledge, precognitive biases. They have bad examples, wounded hearts, broken bodies, and seared consciences. They're almost always victims before they were perpetrators, almost always hurt before they hurt others, almost always lied to before they lied. Who are they to sin? (laughs) They're sinners. I mean, (laughs) where's the surprise? Of course people do this. Let me give an analogy. I I, I spent uh, a year on Guam right after I graduated from college doing ministry, and one of my friends was on the military team. So he was doing discipleship and evangelism on a military base, and one of the guys he was talking to worked at the base exchange. And among other responsibilities he had, there was this great big clock in the center of the base exchange. And his job was to make sure it was accurately set. And you can imagine the military, they do a lot of stuff not only by the clock, but kind of by the minute. And so people care about actually that the thing's really right. So his boss tells him, yeah, you're in charge of keeping that clock right. And says, okay, great, but how do I do it? How do I know what time it is? He says, actually, that part of your job is really easy. There's a uh, civil defense kind of siren down at the other end of base. And it goes off every day exactly at noon. So you could be stocking shelves or checking out whatever you're doing. It doesn't matter. When you hear that siren go off, just look at the clock and see if it says 12 noon. And if it doesn't, adjust the time so that it does. And the guy's like, okay, fair enough. So he's working there six or eight months, and he's keeping the clock all tuned up. And 
One day after work, he goes over to the bar, sits down beside a guy, they start chatting, and he asks him what he's doing. He says, oh, I work down at the uh, civil defense end of the thing. Um, I'm the guy who pushes the button on the siren every day. And he goes, oh, wow, isn't that cool? They start talking about this. And finally the guy says, hey, how do you know what the right time is? He says, oh, that's real easy. There's a clock at the base exchange. <laughs> and it's like, ah, got it. And you know what? That's how most of our human behavior takes place. We look at what this person's doing and says, oh, that must be what I should do. And the funny thing is at the same time, that person's looking at what we're doing and saying, oh, that must be what I should do. And you have this funny dance of conforming yourself to whomever you hold in high regard or have a regard for. That's just the way it works. So why do people sin? Well, I suppose it's because they're surrounded by other people who sin, right? And they don't really feel that different. And so when we get all worked up and frothy and, you know, burn down the house, what's wrong with these guys? At some point, you want to stop and think, you know what? They're probably just setting their clock by the siren, which is set by the clock, which is set by the siren. And probably we should tone the rhetoric down a little bit. And the best way, if the problem here is we do whatever the people we hold in high regard do, then the way we get people to actually repent is by us doing what's good and then becoming one of the people that they hold in high regard, right? Because they're already wired to do and imitate the things that they see the people they have a regard for are doing. So our challenge here is to really approach a person so as to give and extend to them regard, that they would have regard for us. So... That's our second big question. Let me just close by talking about this final one, about how do we then get heard. So I've talked about two ways that we might call someone to repent and have it not work. And we've talked actually already a fair bit about some things Daniel did to make this good. Let me just summarize what Daniel did really simply. He had a regard for people and he had a regard for the truth. And you see this really clearly in the passage. It begins, and we already read this with uh, Daniel's part of the passage, begins with him being alarmed and being, you know, concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. And you see immediately that Daniel conveys his concern for another person simply by having empathy for them. Bad message coming your way, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's distraught that this is coming on that other person. The second thing he does right after that is kind of say, hey, and I'm on your side, I'm with you. Um, So he says, may this terrible thing, may this happen to your enemies, not to you. He kind of affirms the fact that even though this is happening, I'm still the guy who wants to be cheering for you. I want it to be different. He closes by suggesting how he might help make it different. So he clearly is valuing and extending goodwill to Nebuchadnezzar. But the other thing he does is he's really good with having a regard for the truth. And as I already mentioned, he states the truth clearly and simply. Um, And that's how he leaves it. And one of the things I love about Daniel is once he's stated it clearly and simply, he leaves it there. In other words, he had enough courage in his convictions to speak up, and he had enough faith in God to shut up after he'd spoken up. He conveyed the message clearly, and then he left it to God. And God, of course, worked in his life to change his opinion. <laughs> no, Nebuchadnezzar just ignored him, right? That happens. Now, of course, God amps it up, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes around. But the bottom line is, I'm describing nothing that guarantees someone will hear you. I'm just trying to give a little counsel about how you can be faithful to God. And then you have to trust God to be faithful to that other person. And we love to keep tuning it up, more arguments, more ways to do this thing, to try and make sure we get this person changed. And let me encourage you to say that probably what your real job is to warn well and warn clearly and then leave it to God to be the one who executes either judgment or accomplishes repentance and transformation. Now, we've been talking about this in the context of kind of the great big world, the, the, the Daniels and the empires and things like that. It's unlikely that that's the world that you live in every day. You probably don't talk to presidents and senators and all that. But let me just point out the same principles apply when you're talking to a friend, a family member, a co-worker who is perhaps pursuing a course of action that you realize is really problematic and you realize I need to warn. What do you do? Let me encourage you 
to have a regard for the person and a regard for the truth. With a regard for the person, particularly the people we know, what happens when somebody starts to do something wrong and we know them or are friends with them, there's a funny mechanism in our mind that focuses ever more closely on the thing they're doing wrong and forget all the other things that they do right. And one of the ways we would express regard for another person is to continue to affirm the things that are good even when you realize you're going to have to confront the thing that is bad. Um, Daniel does this wonderfully with Nebuchadnezzar in terms of validating some of the greatness of all of what he's done, but saying, nonetheless, here's this part that needs to change. In regard for the truth, again, the idea is, let me say it clearly, but once I've said it, let me trust God to be the one who really accomplishes the change and the transformation. So with that said, let me just leave things here and let me just give you a quick reminder. The seminar I'm doing uh, this afternoon, Winsome Workshop, let me just explain. The title of the book I wrote is Winsome Persuasion. So it's kind of a workshop that's born out of the book and somewhere the persuasion got dropped out of the title, but the bottom line is, if you're wondering, that's a weird name, that's all it is. And I'm going to be talking about a batch of these issues. How do we talk in challenging situations like this? People ask me how the book's doing, and I'm like, look, I wrote a book on religion and politics, and my house hasn't been firebombed. The book is doing great. (laughs) Um, You know, this is one of those areas that's just plain hard, and all I want to do is take some time to look at some really interesting, challenging situations. Part of what we'll do is, you know, look at the problems we have, and I'll say, okay, let's look at some solutions, and let's apply this. In particular, I'll take some time to apply it the conversations we may be having with um, the various issues around sexuality that have become so controversial and so problematic in our culture relative to Christians in our political power. So that's the stuff I'm talking about. So I'd love to have you do that. The book, for those who can't come or whatever, anyhow, there's books available in the back. Um, you can buy it on Amazon, but trust me, way cheaper here. In fact, buy a couple copies here, read them, then sell them back to Amazon, you'll make a profit. Um, <laughs> It's a great deal, I'm telling you. So anyhow, that's what's going on. Let me take a minute to pray for us, and we'll close with a, a worship song. Lord, thank you for the privilege of, uh, of words that we can speak. We can speak truth to people we care about. But Lord, that privilege isn't always one that's easy for us to exercise well. So Lord, we pray you would give us Daniel-like wisdom as we speak to, seek to speak the truth to those in power, to those with whom we disagree that we speak words of warning that they could actually hear and that might be used by you to turn them to repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.